I don't want there to be any confusion as we begin this morning. Um, you probably saw that there were three speakers announced. Um, there are three speakers. The second one, uh, Brian Clark, is held in traffic, as I was last week, and is due here in, uh, in two or three minutes. Uh, the first one, Dr. Martin Murphy, is right here. Um, and the third one is in San Diego. So <clears throat> I don't expect him to be here in person for this, but you will, uh, you'll be able to hear his remarks, uh, Admiral Brown, um, and see the slides over here. So uh, rather than keep you late, I thought it wise to uh, begin our presentation this morning. Good morning, and uh, thank you very much for attending. <clears throat> And welcome to Hudson's Conference on Taiwan and Asymmetric Warfare. Asymmetric Warfare uh, is a term that's used a great deal these days. Uh, however, it is not a modern concept. In fact, it's a very old one. When he was a teenager, uh, David, later King of Israel, faced the Philistine Goliath, who was, according to the Bible, nine feet and nine inches tall. Um, Goliath wore bronze armor from his head to his chest. He had a helmet, chest plate, greaves on his feet, anklets, arm, arms, armor on his arms and carried an iron-tipped bronze javelin slung on his back along with a large sword. Uh, David refused King Saul's offer of, uh, of armor and a sword. He chose to fight unencumbered by the weight of what were conventional weapons at the time. David used his slingshot. I hope this does not come as a surprise to many of you here. And and uh, felled the giant Goliath with a single shot stone to the forehead. Then he cut off the unconscious man's head using Goliath's own sword. David used the asymmetry of a slingshot's range and maneuver, his ability to maneuver to counter his enemy's mass. The little guy defeated the big one using asymmetric means. He wasn't, he may have been the first, he certainly wasn't the last. Some two or three centuries later, Greek soldiers started to arm themselves with shields, swords, and javelins, all made of bronze. These soldiers called hoplites uh, fought in groups called phalanxes, where their armored mass provided a strong defense and a dangerous offensive capability. But the weight, the sheer weight of its offensive and defensive equipment reduced the phalanx's agility and the swiftness of their response. So the asymmetrical response was to the hoplites was called the peltast, and also infantry but much more lightly armed. Um, and 
far better at moving quickly and probing and skirmishing as warfare moved away from large set-piece battles. But David and his Greek successors used different weapons and different tactics to counter their enemy's strength. In fact, the history of warfare itself is in large measure a history of adversaries that seek to exploit their own strengths and one another's vulnerabilities for technical and strategic advantage. Today's submarine and other stealth platforms do exactly this. They use the advantage of relative invisibility to offset an enemy fleet, including its merchant ship size and numbers, or penetrate an enemy's electronic warning system. New technologies are emerging, for example, those that combine advanced technological capability with superior capacity, and that is to say, number of platforms. These, this is what unmanned vehicles beneath the surface, on the surface, and above it offer. Large numbers of platforms that can offset an enemy's numerical and technological advantage. As last year's Pentagon report on the PRC's military states says, quote, preparing for potential conflict in the Taiwan Strait remains the focus and primary driver of China's military investment. The same report notes that, quote, Taiwan has historically relied on multiple military variables to deter PLA aggression. Taiwan is superbly equipped to exploit asymmetrical warfare as an integral part of its defense. It possesses a strong industrial base supported by an essentially solid economy and an abundance of technological expertise. The group of experts that Hudson has brought together this morning is exceptionally well-qualified, well-suited to discuss Taiwan's potential for adding to their current strength in asymmetrical warfare, which includes the construction of indigenous submarines which are the ultimate asymmetric weapon. So I'd like to turn the floor over to our panel, specifically Dr. Murphy here, uh, but not before saying a few words about their experience. Um, Dr. Martin Murphy is an internationally recognized expert on irregular and asymmetrical warfare, especially at sea which is critical here since Taiwan is an island state. He is the author of over 50 books, monographs, and articles. His most recent included a special report for the Heritage Foundation on Russian hybrid warfare and a study of maritime hybrid warfare in the Baltic for the Danish Center for Military Studies. He's currently in engaged on a major study entitled Maritime Warfare, 
the United States and the Sea in the 21st Century that's due to be published by Oxford and Hearst next year. Um, <clears throat> After uh, Dr. Murphy speaks, we'll have uh, some remarks from, uh, from Brian Clark. Uh, and lo and behold, here is Brian Clark. Uh, prior to joining the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments in 2013, Brian was Special Assistant to the Chief of Naval Operations and Director of his Commander's Action Group, where he led development of Navy strategy and implemented new initiatives in electromagnetic spectrum operations, undersea warfare, expeditionary operations, and personnel and readiness management. His areas of emphasis were modeling and simulation, strategic planning, and probably the most important of all of these, because they can't take place without it, institutional reform and governance. And Mr. Clark served the Navy as an enlisted and officer submariner. He holds a Master of Science in National Security Studies from the National War College and a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and Philosophy from the University of Idaho. Uh, our last speaker at a distance, we use technology here, is Rear Admiral Thomas Brown. Uh, Admiral Brown, who is now retired, served as commander of the Special Operations Command South uh, in 2010 and to 2012. Prior to then, uh, he had served his first flag assignment as deputy commander of the Special Operations Command in Europe uh, from 2009 to 2010. He completed his naval career as the military deputy, which is a senior military person at the Naval Geospatial Intelligence Agency in Springfield, Virginia. He's now president of GVP Global Corporation and consults on political military issues, including space and special ops. And as I mentioned, uh, He'll be joining us from San Diego, and since it's three hours earlier there, I felt that mercy was the best approach and policy, so he will speak last, so he can sleep a little bit more, although I doubt he's sleeping right now. Let me turn the, the dais over to uh, Dr. Murphy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Seth, and thank you for inviting me. And thank you, everybody, for coming this morning to this splendid new Hudson Institute facility. And thank you for your patience in, in waiting. Um, I want to start with three basic opening assertions. First, that Taiwan is the key to preventing China breaking out into the Pacific. Secondly, it's not in U.S. interests or the interests of any democratic country to allow that breakout to happen uh, so long as China remains under a communist government. And thirdly, a free and secure Taiwan is as important to the United States as a docile and, free to, and unfree Taiwan is important to the Chinese Communist Party. So the specific subject of the day is asymmetric maritime warfare against Taiwan. 
How will that be realized depends entirely on how the PRC intends to conduct its conflict with what it regards as a lost province. Now, it'd be wrong to say that the PRC is wary of using military force, although it should be wary of using that force against a competent and determined opponent. It invaded Tibet easily, and India in the high mountains presented no difficulties, and it will probably do so again, probably not present difficulties again, uh, should, given India's lack of preparedness if the PRC decides to resume its campaign. On the other hand, it was fought to a standstill by the USSR on the Amur River and was defeated by Vietnam. So from Deng on, however, it has for the most part sought to, retain its, sought to attain its uh, territorial objectives either through negotiation or where that has not been possible through the use of stealth, using measures that have included political bribery, diplomatic isolation, coercive dependency, um, political bribery, subversion, and access either to its immense domestic market or to its heretofore low-wage labor market. Now, changes in this strategy appeared firstly following the 1996 Taiwan Straits crisis when China began to embark on a program of military modernization. And secondly, and much more obviously, after the 2008 financial crisis, which some in China saw as the beginning of Western decline. Now, there's quite obviously been a quantum increase in the PRC's military capability, capacity, and as yet unknowable improvement in its ability to assert military force successfully. But the PRC has preferred to deploy its military potential so far in a demonstrable fashion, as in military parades and overflights, or threateningly, as against US ships and aircraft conducting legal operations in its EEZ, rather than in terms of an aggressive military posture even against military minnows such as the Philippines. On the contrary, it accuses the US of militarization uh, and rather than itself. Now, what needs to be considered as far as Taiwan is concerned, therefore, is how China's military and non-military capabilities could be used to further a campaign designed first and foremost to achieve its national or, or party aims short of war. That's not to suggest the PRC won't resort to conventional or conceivably nuclear war, despite its assertion that it won't make first use, um, if it believes it cannot obtain its objectives any other way. However, most indications suggest it would prefer to continue uh, achieving its ends using means that have been called variously grey zone, ambiguous, asymmetric. Really, there is now quite a menu, which is deeply confusing. <laughs> The temptation we face, I suggest, is to look at cross-strait asymmetry too much in terms of conventional military capabilities, such as uh, anti-submarine cruise missiles or anti-ship cruise missiles and so forth, uh, which is where we have made our major investments, while paying insufficient attention to alternative modes of conflict and the wider geopolitical and specifically geographical context uh, in which they will be employed. 
In my view, those who suggest that the PRC campaign in the East China Sea and the South China Sea are designed to contribute ultimately to the isolation of Taiwan and destroy its de facto independence are right. Of course, both campaigns have local and intermediate objectives in each area, in each sea. But in the end, what they achieve against these objectives is and will be secondary to gaining Taiwan. Because as I said at the beginning, Taiwan is the key to transforming the first island chain from a line of containment to a line of defense and a jumping off point for China to the rest of the Pacific. Now China's aim is to effectively territorialize both seas, closing them to any power that from time to time opposes Chinese interests. Chinese assurances that freedom of navigation is under no threat is empty, given its willingness to arbitrarily redefine established legal concepts to mean precisely what China wants them to mean. Indeed, I'm hard-pressed to see why China, once the road, uh, road portion of the OBOR has been completed, would not act to close its littoral seas to commercial as well as military traffic of any and all states that oppose its regional hegemony. So what measures has the PRC used and which of these measures may or will be used against Taiwan? Now many of the big measures are in place already, diplomatic isolation, commercial denial, especially of arms, economic dependency on mainland markets and tourism, and as Blackwell and Harris, authors of War by Other Means, also point out, Taiwan's systemic importance to the global market is one that Beijing can also exploit. Now, unless and until US, the United States, Taiwan's neighbors, and other important trading nations put in place measures to weaken the PRC's diplomatic and economic assault on Taiwan, its vulnerability to political and economic warfare will continue. Turning, however, to maritime measures specifically, Andrew Erickson and his colleagues at the Naval War College have traced the rise of China's paramilitary maritime forces, the Chinese Coast Guard, Fisheries Enforcement Force, and Maritime Militia, and analyzed their tactics, methods, and, and the overlapping pressures they can exert in pursuance of Chinese national policy, and the option of deniability they give the Chinese political authorities. It is precisely because they are not naval forces and therefore associated immediately with the use of military force that they've been able to use force and mass to intimidate, arrest, and harass the vessels of weaker states in the ostensible pursuit of law enforcement, fishery vessel protection, policing of traditional fishery grounds, and so on and so forth, uh, as vehicles, um, and as vehicles for the assertion by volunteers and patriots of righteous anger at the assault by outsiders on China's historical rights, as defined and as claimed by the current regime. All of these measures have been conducted with sufficient ambiguity to inhibit an armed response by regional powers and the United States. The actions furthermore are backed up by sustained legal challenges, lawfare, propaganda, and other information operations. Based on what has been observed in the East and, China, East and South China Seas, we can expect China to, for example, sail ships and other vessels belonging to these organizations, these agencies, 
together with large numbers of commercial fishing craft into Taiwan's territorial and um, EEZ waters, increasingly, increasing frequency with the intention of sparking incidents that demonstrate Taiwanese weakness and intransigence while sparking, ideally, overreactions uh, by the Taiwanese Navy. Stage events such as fraternal greetings between mainland and island fishermen to make the point that the division between mainland and the island is an artificial divide maintained by an anti-Chinese clique working in collusion with the United States. Possibly interdict Taiwanese coastal shipping just as Chinese custom craft arrested foreign-owned and operated boats as far south as the Gulf of Thailand in the early 1990s, accusing them of smuggling goods into mainland China. So what can China, so what, what can Taiwan do uh, to counter or respond to these gray zone tactics? The most serious challenge is gaining or regaining the initiative. Challenger states have first mover advantage, and that needs to be blunted or seized back by adopting a counter-punch strategy. Each probe by a challenger state needs to be met with a response. This need not be equivalent or even occur in the same domain, but the challenger needs to expect that its probes will be met with an appropriate response, often in ways that it cannot anticipate, thus forcing it onto at least the partial defensive. Measures can be taken anywhere across the political, diplomatic, legal, economic, paramilitary, covert and informational spectrum, including demonstrations of military force. But there are three critical dog elements. There are three critical elements. Um, anyway, to sum up, Taiwan is the key to the Pacific and the integrity of the First Island chain. It is, is a vital forward bulwark for the United States. For China, capturing Taiwan is their get-out-of-jail card. China aims to overwhelm Taiwan using non-military means to win without fighting. This does not mean it will not use violence below the level of war. It will, and it has. The main purpose of the campaign it is conducting in the East and South China Seas, while they have a local rationale, is to encircle Taiwan. The asymmetrical measures that China will employ at sea against Taiwan have already been exercised in both seas. The key to countering them is a cross-government response that means China can expect a response against any measure it takes, but it will not know where. Extensive maritime surveillance, which means that China cannot exploit Taiwan's weak spots or mass its own effects without Taiwan knowing about it, is critical. Taiwan needs to reinforce its Coast Guard and build it into a force that is capable of maintaining a permanent and extensive at-sea presence that is able to respond effectively, optimized at a level below the trigger point for violent conflict. Anything, anywhere within Taiwan's waters and in support of Taiwan's regional maritime interests. Its response to Chinese provocations needs to be coordinated with its regional neighbors and the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Martin. Ryan?
Thank you, Seth. Uh, I'd like to apologize for uh, being late. Got caught behind an accident over in Northwest uh, DC. That was no fun. So uh, thank you very much for inviting me, Seth, to speak today. And uh, this is something that uh, at, Center, at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, we've looked at uh, pretty extensively over the years, the, the challenge faced by uh, Taiwan with regard to its uh, relationship with China and its ability to defend its interests. So. Uh, I wanted to present some of the ideas that we've been discussing over at uh, CSBA, maybe provide some uh, counterpoints to the things that uh, Dr. Murphy brought up, and, uh, and, and we'll see what Admiral Brown says after this. Uh, but if you can go ahead, there we go. So the, the, the big challenge facing uh, Taiwan, which we're all largely familiar with, is the fact that it's easily ranged by a lot of weapon systems that are uh, based in mainland China. Uh, this pr produces a situation where Taiwan feels like it could always, always be under threat, it could always be attacked with relatively short warning, uh, and it creates the conditions that help China uh, in terms of its ability to coerce Taiwan, or th in theory coerce Taiwan, because it can hold this hammer over the, the Taiwanese head. The, uh, it, what this drives us to is, though, is a consideration, well, what is it that China really wants vis-a-vis uh, -vis its relationship with Taiwan? Uh, does China want to fight Taiwan and subdue it and finally bring the nationalists under uh, subjugation? Uh, it doesn't seem like that would be uh, necessarily a great idea on their part. Uh, the, the, at least the, the war fighting, modeling, and simulation that I've been part of, the other analyses that have been done by other entities, show that trying to take Taiwan by force uh, very is a very difficult proposition. Uh, trying to get ground forces ashore and then make their make their way to uh, centers of population and to military targets is very difficult in that environment in particular. Uh, and the experience of previous conflicts that were fought on Taiwan would indicate that that's that's not exactly uh, the the, ro the road to uh, achieving the influence that China might want over Taiwan. So if it's not necessarily a, a direct fight that the Chinese would would want with the Taiwanese. Uh, what is it that they, they is their objective? And as Martin has mentioned, uh, it's to uh, eventually bring the Taiwanese to back into the fold and to enable China to use Taiwan as a jumping off point for future power projection, whether it's military operations or just the ability to now be not hemmed in by the first island chain. Uh, they, they're, they're concerned that between Japan and the growing U.S. relationship with the Philippines, and burgeoning U.S. efforts with regard to Vietnam and, and Indonesia and Malaysia, they may find themselves with uh, the first island chain presenting a barrier uh, rather than a uh, jumping off point. Uh, in the wargaming that we've done over the last couple of years, uh, we found that what that does is it creates a situation where if you're China, you have to deploy your military forces very early in a conflict or in a confrontation with the West, which, present, which makes them vulnerable and creates a, a, t a clock where if your forces have to return home for some kind of sustainment or, or resupply, they've now got to do whatever they're going to have to do quickly and then return to some safe place where they can be resupplied. And there's not that many places like that around the world for China right now. So they're really looking for an opportunity to bring Taiwan back into the fold to create this ability to avoid the geographic limitations that the first island chain would otherwise present. So the best way to do that you know, would be, of course, over time to just slowly accrete influence and, and reduce the uh, resistance of Taiwan to being perceived as, as part of China, eventually re resulting in the uh, ability to maybe base military forces or at least support forces on Taiwan. Uh, 
the military capabilities that China has are a tool for doing that to show that resistance is futile over time. You will come back into the fold. We'll just hold this over your head, but not necessarily use it. And for Taiwan, without the ability to adequately defend itself, it leaves it vulnerable to continued coercion. I'm not sure if China is going to take the gray zone approach they've been taking in the South China Sea and the East China Sea with regard to the Senkakus with regard to Vietnam, because the idea of continuing to provoke Taiwan with gray zone aggression or assertions would seem like it would just sort of stoke this feeling on the part of the Taiwanese that they are continuing to be under threat and that China's relationship with them is adversarial and not one of a friendly neighbor trying to bring them back into the fold. So I'm not sure if that would be the approach that China would take. So to that end, what we've been looking at at CSB are ways that Taiwan could posture its military capabilities that would enable it to feel more confident in its ability to stand up to China when China does try to coerce it or to imply that there's a threat of force that could be used. Because if you have a little more confidence about your ability to withstand an attack by force, then perhaps that would give them the ability to withstand political and diplomatic pressure as well. So if you go to the next slide. So we've looked at a couple of ways of doing that. And so asymmetric approaches don't just mean using information warfare or special operators. Asymmetric approaches can also just mean going after strengths of your enemy with a strength of your own, going after one of his weaknesses with one of your strengths. So trying to use capabilities that are not a direct force-on-force capability, but instead undermine your opponent's perceived strength. So one of China's perceived strengths is its ability to control the airspace and the waters adjacent to Taiwan, because it has this mainland-based capability to conduct anti-ship attacks, air attacks, and then fly aircraft all over the straits and potentially over the country of Taiwan. So in the sea side, looking at how would Taiwan potentially deny the sea to China, a country much larger than it, with a much larger navy, with the ability to control the airspace above the water, there's some ways that, that Taiwan could do that. Uh, and some of, its in, some of its current investments would be a starting point to doing that. So submarines might present a key capability to being able to deny the straits to China's attempts to potentially do amphibious assaults or to bring you know, soft uh, special operations personnel over across the straits. Uh, the straits uh, are, uh, the Taiwan Strait is not a very hospitable environment. Both are on or above, below the water, having operated there before. It's uh, not very, uh, there's not great uh, water depth. The, the sonic conditions aren't very good. The weather can sometimes be very inhospitable. And the landing areas, if you were going to try to do an amphibious assault on the western side of the island, are, are very uh, few and far between. And the ones that are there are very difficult because they're marshy and, and, and hard to get forces ashore very quickly. So if you can slow down or at least attrite some of the Chinese landing forces that might come over, you would be able to present, a, a, present or demonstrate to the Chinese the ability to deny them that, that approach to coercion. So what we were proposing is that uh, Taiwan augment its current plan to uh, build uh, SSKs with some smaller submarines that you could buy in larger numbers. The key reason being that you to be able to attack uh, 
amphibious shipping or other high-value ships of the Chinese Navy that were coming across the strait, you'd need to be able to identify them and pick them out from what could be a large number of paramilitary and civilian forces that might also be out there in, to confuse the target picture. So you need somebody out there who can look and see which target is which to be able to provide information back to anti-ship cruise missiles based on Taiwan that could then engage these targets. So that idea of combat ID is a key component of an asymmetric approach to defeating uh, an amphibious assault by China. That, that asymmetric capability for combat ID could be provided by small submarines that are out there because the airspace will be largely denied to Taiwan and because the surface will be largely denied to Taiwan. So using a subsurface capability is the asymmetric approach that they might want to take to be able to defeat the Chinese amphibious assault. And you would combine that with mobile land-based cruise missiles that would then be able to engage these Chinese uh, targets. You wouldn't have to, to uh, attack very many of them to demonstrate the ability to China that you could reduce their combat power sufficiently so they can't get enough people ashore to mount a successful invasion. That enough would be enough to deter uh, a Chinese attack and take away an option that China would otherwise have. Next slide. Uh, air defense is another key component of this because, you know, denied the sea approach, China would be assumed to just bombard Taiwan until uh, people, the, the government and the people decide to give up and, and you know, go back and fall back in with China. Uh, so not actually taking the island by force, but instead damaging and destroying and killing enough people to coerce the, the, the government into capitulation. The approach to take to uh, defeat that would be a similar kind of guerrilla air defense approach with, where we use shorter range mobile air defense systems, uh, very similar to how uh, uh, the uh, Serbians uh, defended Kosovo uh, when uh, U.S. and NATO forces were attempting to attack them there. Very successful operation where they drove up the number of uh, protection missions that the NATO forces had to undertake, which slowed the advance of the uh, airstrikes. It's very similar to what was also done by the North Vietnamese during the Vietnam War, where uh, the, the brand new SA-2 surface-to-air missile was, was introduced by the Soviets, and in mobile systems, or at least relocatable systems, that the North Vietnamese could move around and create this risk, a uh, constant risk of an air, air defense system uh, taking down a, a expensive U.S. bomber or fighter. So the U.S. had to mount a larger and larger protection campaign for the, the fighters that they were trying to send over North Vietnam. In this case, you could significantly increase the uh, challenge for China if it were trying to do aerial bombardment of Taiwan by using mobile air defenses that are relatively short-range systems. For example, uh, the Evolve Sea Sparrow uh, missile, which is used on ships today, but is also has a ground-based uh, alternative. Uh, shore ads the, that our army and that other armies use would also be useful in this kind of configuration where you're not necessarily trying to shoot down a lot of uh, enemy airplanes, but the threat of it alone is enough to cause the enemy to have to mount larger and larger attacks. Every airplane that gets taken off of the bombing mission to go to the fighter or defense mission is another one that can't drop bombs on uh, Taiwan. And so for China, this makes this proposition for bombardment of Taiwan into a larger and larger and more expensive endeavor and potentially more protracted, all of which makes it less attractive for them as an approach to coerce China to heal, or Taiwan to heal. Next slide. And then on the ground, uh, you'd want to take advantage of the fact that Taiwan is a very difficult uh, landmass to take uh, by force with ground troops and exploit the terrain that's there already and use uh, 
mobile forces with irregular uh, organizational constructs using man pads and ATGMs, just like we've currently uh, used in the U.S. forces and that other forces use, but focus very much on this idea of uh, slowing down and protracting the campaign. So when, when China looks at Taiwan and tries to think of its options with regard to coercion, it only sees options that are going to be protracted, difficult, expensive, and the investment on the Taiwanese side is not necessarily that significant. This doesn't stop necessarily China from trying to pursue these approaches, but it does make it so that they're deterred from them unless they're willing to expend a significant amount of cost and, and uh, blood in the process. Next slide. And how you would, so how you would pay for this. So currently, uh, this shows kind of a just very rough breakdown of the current uh, Taiwan proposal for expanding its uh, investment using uh, U.S. systems or buying some U.S. systems. So the breakdown that's on the left-hand side of there, which uh, is mostly going to large uh, SSKs and to uh, buying a, a bunch of uh, F-16 Charlies and Deltas, if instead we looked at breaking that down a little bit differently and doing modernization of the existing F-16 fleet that Taiwan has, and then spending some money on new ground-based mobile air defenses that would provide a much more effective uh, air superiority capability over Taiwan than F-16s will using this guerrilla air defense approach. And then use some portion of the money that would go to SSKs to buy uh, a fleet of smaller submarines, you know, like in the, uh, 20, uh, the 209 class or 700 to 1,000 ton range, uh, that you could buy in larger numbers that could go do this uh, targeting mission to support asymmetric counter-maritime operations uh, in the strait. Uh, that balance would be able to more effectively defend Taiwan and present the, the Chinese with a, a much more difficult prospect in terms of invasion, taking away that option and forcing them to think of other approaches that, that may be more attractive, so diplomatic or economic options may be what China's forced to do, and that may be in Taiwan's interest. So at least if uh, eventual, eventually going back into the fold is, is in the cards, then you can extract as much out of uh, China in the process as you can. Next slide. I think that's it for this slide. Yep. So, uh, so in in uh, summary, what we're what we're looking at is uh, you're looking at much more from a military perspective, but looking at the opportunities to protract and increase the cost and challenge to China of to undertaking either ground, air, or uh, maritime approaches to try to coerce uh, Taiwan uh, militarily and forcing them to think of other options to be able to uh, address their concern about Taiwan being a, a barrier in the first island chain. And I welcome your questions later. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. We'll, we will have a question period um, when all the speakers are finished. And Adam, if you're ready to just step back for a second. Brown, are you there? Yes, I am, Seth. I'm here. Good morning. Very early good morning. Good morning. It's a better morning for you guys than for me. <laughs> 
Thank you. Uh, we've had uh, an excellent assessment of... Uh, have, have you been able to listen to the proceedings so far this morning, or the, what's the hookup? No, I Okay, so no, I, I haven't. But if you wanted to give me a few of the highlights, that might be useful. Well, we've had uh, very good, uh, excellent assessments from both speakers. Uh, first, uh, Martin Murphy on that looked at the geopolitical elements of uh, asymmetric warfare, asymmetric defense yeah. for Taiwan, and then uh, Brian Clark. Um, has discussed uh, basically an integrated approach to asymmetric defense um, that calls on uh, strengths of Taiwan um, paired against or opposed to uh, having the effect of raising the cost uh, yeah. to uh, to China. So. Uh, that's basically where you're picking up. So um, your views um, will either contrast with or uh, go along with or in some way or another uh, assist us in how to think about the asymmetric approaches that would be useful for, uh, for Taiwan in a defense against, uh, against the PRC. Yeah. I, it sounds to me like my comments will complement the first two speakers. There probably won't be much daylight between how we view things, but uh, that's my guess. Well, um, unanimity is uh, is rare and uh, and useful. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, have you got my first slide up? Yes, we do. Yeah. Okay. It's up time. Um, I, I'm going to try and uh, I, I'm sure you're, you're already a half hour behind, so I'm going to I'm going to be very quick. Um, just a little of my philosophy on PowerPoint. A lot of people put a huge amount of effort into PowerPoint, and then they either don't use it or they read it word for word. Both techniques being bad, so. My technique is uh, to allow the readers to 20 seconds to review the slide, and then I'll highlight some things. And if any questions arise or comments arise as I'm going through the brief, um, go ahead and ask them as we're going through it and we're on the subject. So on the title slide, has somebody dis um, defined asymmetric warfare yet? given the definition of it. Uh, your thoughts on this would be helpful. Well, it's not my thoughts. It's my favorite website thoughts, and that's Wikipedia. But it's, it's simply that normally people think of asymmetric warfare as a Russia or United States, a large major power fighting an insurgency in a place like Syria or Afghanistan, and that disequilibrium leads to the enemy fading into the populace when things aren't going their way or using roadside bombs, non-typical military weapons. Um, this 
asymmetric warfare around them. The stress today is a large, large state actor against a, a much smaller, weaker state actor. Um, and I mean, I mean weak relative because we all know the, the Taiwan has a very capable military. It's just that, you know, China has 20 times the GDP that, um, Taiwan has. So those, so that asymmetry between the two is built in. Uh, next slide, please. So, um, the first, uh, presentation this morning, did it, is this sort of how it cleaved? There's a number of actions from least dangerous to most dangerous that the Taiwanese may have to deal with with respect to PRC. Um, we all know the PRC has an overwhelming number of intermediate-range ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, attack aircraft that could severely damage Taiwan's civil and military infrastructure. And there are things that Taiwan can do to protect uh, some of that infrastructure, especially the military. But um, that's a first strike is followed by an attempted invasion is what I consider to be the most dangerous. Is Was that discussed or was that a, agreed upon as a most dangerous course of action that Taiwan may have to deal with? Well, we haven't agreed on anything yet except uh, to listen to ideas and then discuss them. Okay. But, but you're, you're, uh, you're getting warm. Okay. I'm going to give people 10 seconds to look at the slide, and then, uh, it, Seth, if anybody wants to ask a question or wants to start a discussion in the room based on any of these bullets, We'll do it, but I'll give you give you well, ten seconds. Actually, Tom, what would be uh, what would fit the format most easily here is if you go through your presentation and then at the end of that we'll open the floor to questions and people will be okay. encouraged to ask questions of particular speakers and then we'll okay. have a conversation. That okay, way. they'll take notes. Okay, got it. Um, Anyway, those those are those scenarios are the ones that I thought uh, of. There, there's certainly others that are they're perhaps more politically oriented um, posturing by the PRC, but not a full deployment of their forces. There's other things they can do, but th these are these four courses of action are the things that worry me. Uh, next slide. Okay, so we know, so we already know what the deal is with respect to China and Taiwan, both being professional militaries, but the Chinese or the PRC capability being the much greater one. The, the, the Republic of Korea or Taiwan can never hope to match the number of platforms that China is fielding and has already fielded. So they have to, they have to, Taiwan must come up with, up with an asymmetric way of dealing with Chinese advantages and platforms. They have a lot more destroyers, cruisers, patrol craft, 
attack aircraft, fighter aircraft, ballistic missiles. They have an overwhelming advantage with respect to numbers. And uh, so how do you deal with that? Um, I've listed some capabilities. There are cyber, electronic warfare, deception. Some of these things can be used to negate the Chinese advantage. Next slide, please. Okay, I think that the uh, the Taiwan's desire for the uh, for submarines is is very well founded. Submarines continue to be the asymmetric platform of choice in sea control and sea denial. In this case, probably sea denial because four submarines is not going to get you sea control. Um, if if I could uh, throw a nickel in the wishing well, I'd wish for 12 Taiwanese submarines rather than four, um, and I'd keep a number of them on constant patrol out of port. And I'd also be prepared to move those assets out of port um, when indications and warnings are such that there's there's a first strike, you don't want to lose these very expensive important assets to a cruise missile attack in port, and that's a, a high threat. But um, and there's also emerging technologies, not just manned submarines, but unmanned underwater vehicles. Uh, um, these platforms that use waves to power them that you can put sensors on. And if you deploy those in the East and South China Sea, you can have a, an information advantage over the Chinese because these kinds of platforms that are being played with are, are very hard for an enemy to detect and kill in any great number. Um, also, submarines, if uh, they have to defend themselves against other Chinese submarines, but if there's a attempted amphibious invasion, a submarine can wreak havoc on that. So that's the Taiwan's advantage. Um, so I can't <laughs> speak highly enough about um, sea denial and how important submarines and some of these emerging technologies are to a Taiwanese asymmetric conflict. Next slide, please. Now, Taiwan, just like any any military power, needs to have some ability to operate on the surface of the ocean to accomplish any number of tasks. I think. But the latest Chinese frigate or Taiwanese frigate I saw deployed, I was very impressed with its capabilities, and it's pictured here. Um, you know, it's it's not overly expensive, and it doesn't have a gigantic crew. It has very good uh, missile capabilities, and I think dispersing those sorts of ships in the right areas could um, very much complicate Chinese sea control. 
Um, you don't want to aggregate those assets like the United States does as far as a surrounding a carrier with carrier battle group escorts because then you just provide a lot of targets in one place that will likely be overwhelmed by Chinese missiles, anti-ship missiles. Now, on the right side, you see a picture of a platform that's in development by a U.S. company called Lidos. It's about 130 feet. It's unmanned. And if you're going to operate in the set, if you're going to operate within, you know, the, the second island chain, you're going to, you're going to probably have a tough time with ships in that, in, in the second island chain, certainly within the first chain. A surface vessel like this could have both weapons and sensors, and the platform itself would be relatively inexpensive and low risk because there's no crew. So if you employ it in a A2AD environment, um, you're not going to feel guilty if you lose one because you didn't lose any people when you lost it. And um, if, for instance, you lost an air crew, they went down in the South China Sea very close to the Chinese um, shoreline, you know, let's say 100, 100 miles, how are you going to pick them up? Now, helicopters, um, if you don't have air superiority, that's not going to work. Uh, a submarine is one way to do it, but as soon as that submarine surfaces, it's at risk, and it's at risk very quickly in, in some of those areas. So you might send in an, un, send in an unmanned surface vessel that deploys a ladder, and there's a place for the uh, air crew to sit and then move them out of the danger area as quickly as possible. Um, so for combat search and rescue on the water, an unmanned surface vessel may be of value. Next slide. Okay. Um, we all know that uh, Taiwan didn't get quite the upgrade to their F-16 fleet that they wanted. <clears throat> and uh, their F-16s are still fourth generation. China, of course, is building the F-20, I believe we're calling it, uh, Generation 5 fighter. So I would understand that I had this conversation when I was in Europe with small powers that didn't have big defense budgets, but they're buying the F-35 stealth aircraft, and they're buying it because they don't want to be considered a lesser power, and they think that a fifth-generation fighter conveys a, a certain... A, 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 them being in a certain league with more advanced nations. Taiwan's needs are, are, and are, are very easily explained with if Taiwan wants to maintain air superiority simply over Taiwan and the approaches to Taiwan, having a fifth generation fighter will make a huge difference. 
Um, obviously, that would very much upset the People's Republic of China, but um, perhaps they could partner with Japan in their development of their own indigenously uh, produced fifth-generation fighter. I don't know the political um, possibility of that. I don't know if Japan's willing to to anger China with a move like that, but um, certainly China and Japan tensions are high, and uh, you know Japan may may have an ally in Taiwan uh, armed with Japanese fifth generation fighters, but to establish air superiority, the other thing I recommend is asymmetric. Um, if you buy a huge number of anti air highly capable anti-aircraft missiles, you can swarm the uh, th- uh, Chinese attack and fighter aircraft. You can shoot four or five missiles at each airplane. They're going to have a very hard time evading those missiles. And uh, I think it's the very low-frequency wavelength radars Wavelength radars are showing some capacity to at least tell you that there's a fifth-generation fighter in your airspace. And uh, once the missile gets closer, um, it has a better chance of hitting the fifth-generation fighter, much like we lost the F-117 in the conflict in the Balkans. But um, kind of be curious to hear what the audience thinks about partnership between Japan and Taiwan on a fifth-generation fighter. In the meantime, the best that Taiwan can do is get as many upgrades to their F-16 fleet as they can and turn it into a 4.5-generation fighter. And if they're trying to establish air air superiority over Taiwan, Taiwan has anti-aircraft missiles deployed. The two of them in concert <coughs> may make uh, PRC air supremacy over Taiwan a very difficult thing. Okay, that was slide six, so we'll go to slide, next slide. Now, Cyber gets thrown around a lot without fully defining what we mean by cyber. But if, let's say, for instance, a lesser power is able to enter into the systems of the larger power and disrupt their ability to communicate, that could be a, a huge asymmetric advantage. Um, deception can play a role. Uh, you know, I, I call them dummy aircraft, but that's an old technique, uh, that the, that the Iraqis used. It's that a lot of smaller powers and similar asymmetric, uh, and considering asymmetric warfare against a larger power have put dummy aircraft out to a trite 
the enemy's air-to-ground weapon systems. Um, now, the the Chinese will be able to tell the difference between some plastic blow-up airplane and a real one. So I would suggest um, asking the United States if they could have some of the first-generation of F-16s that are already in the boneyard, if you will, in Tucson or outside Arizona, Tucson, Arizona. You know, those are real airplanes with real radar signatures, um, and it's going to be very hard for China to distinguish between that and an active uh, and an active Taiwanese F-16 fighter. And I know already that um, that uh, when I say hardened infrastructure, that's important. But what's even more important is what I what I know the Taiwanese practice, and that's dispersal of their air assets to highways where highways can be used as runways and they um, are not easily targeted because the Chinese have to have very precise information about which highway and where these guys are flying out of. That ability to use highways as, as airfields given the very good Taiwanese infrastructure with roads that is an asymmetric advantage. If you concentrate all of your aircraft at an air, air base, um, you know, just look at the results with the U.S. at Pearl Harbor. Um, a concentrating forces is a World War II concept. Today, it's all about dispersed assets that are networked. If you concentrate assets, you just make your, you just make it easier for the enemy to swarm you with um, A2AD uh, combat systems. Okay, next slide. Okay. <clears throat> it's a, I, I am not certain, um, based on my last, uh, my visit to Taiwan a year and a half ago, I think, that the Taiwanese have a missile that can hit a Chinese ballistic missile mid-flight or wherever it makes the most sense, um, or if they have that capability on their cruisers. But I think that the Taiwanese should have a plentiful supply of missiles that can knock out ballistic missiles, because that is a huge threat to Taiwanese civil and military infrastructure. And we already talked about the deception part with uh, um, uh, with respect to attriting their systems, because their missile systems, those missiles are not cheap. I, I would love to see a much bigger Taiwanese uh, submarine fleet, I know <coughs> how politically challenging even four is, so it may not be realistic, but um, you know, if, if I could be king for a day, I'd say triple the number of submarines you plan to buy, and you know, if you're making trade-offs in your budget, you trade off surface ships because the surface ships are going to be very vulnerable to a 
what is becoming an increasingly blue water navy and the um, Taiwanese frigates will probably be forced to patrol outside the second chain of islands or hide within and among the islands, but they're going to be vulnerable to a much larger fleet. So um, I think the submarine acquisition is critical. I think once they get the first four, um, you know, you start putting them in your doctrine and uh, hopefully there's a way to acquire more. And, and uh, there are technologies out there that they're using, that they're experimenting with to detect submarines moving underwater. Um, they're not there yet, so submarines are still convey that asymmetric advantage. Next slide. So I think uh, what the, the Taiwan has a great asymmetric advantage because of precision guided munitions. If um, they're using artillery, let's say, to try and stop an amphibious invasion. You know, they might hit one out of, you know, one out of 20 shots might have hit in the old days. Now, with precision guided munitions on mobile ground platforms, you can basically guarantee one hit slash kill one shot. So, Having mobile anti-ship missile systems, ground mobile, uh, can really help deter an amphibious invasion. And there's only certain places that the Chinese could establish a lodgment on the beach anyway, so it's not a, so it, it wouldn't be a, a secret about where you'd want to have those assets ready to deploy to. Um, and we already talked about more submarines. Um, Chinese doctrine, I think back in 1999, a couple of officers wrote about uh, what they called unrestricted warfare, which, I, which you know, Germany employed at one point and got in a lot of trouble. But they may use fishing vessels with tarps over the missiles that are on the shipping vessels. And the fact that they're uh, fishing vessels uh, would make the fleet commander um, reticent to fire a weapon because then you'd lose the information war um, and you'd lose sympathy real fast. So one way to make sure that this vessel is not carrying missiles, if the air superiority is, if there's some level of air superiority that even allows helicopters in the air, <clears throat> you can do what's called visit board search and seizure, search the vessel for uh, missiles, and then if there are missiles, you seize the vessel. If there aren't, you just go home. And uh, that's, that's a possible use of uh, Taiwanese Maritime Soft. Now, the use of uh, Army Special Operations Forces to operate in the in the rear echelon of, of China, um, it, 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 those forces could cause a lot of damage, but 
you wouldn't have combat search and rescue capabilities for them. You wouldn't have Kazavac for them. So it's a very high-risk proposition putting um, Taiwanese Special Forces on the mainland. It has to be a very, very important objective. <clears throat> so unmanned systems may be the better choice in some of the missions that in the past, we considered to be special operations missions. But in, again, in conclusion, the era of precision-guided munitions is to the advantage of Taiwan in any potential conflict. Um, and again, I'd, I'd be curious to know if um, Taiwan has a DEFCON-like uh, system that, that puts their forces on higher alert based on indications and warnings. Um, I just don't know that they have that or not. Um, okay, well, I'll give people a chance to look at the last slide. I'm ready for questions or I'm ready for people to discuss whatever they want to discuss. Tom, thank you very much. Uh, excellent presentation. Excellent presentations from all members of the panel. Look, uh, we do have time for a question and answer period. Many questions will get answered. Um, so if you would be so good as to, uh, when you're recognized, tell us who you are, who you are what your affiliation is, and uh, not only the question, but to whom you are addressing the question. And we'll start from there. Hi, uh, Stuart Robertson from the Cato Institute. Um, I was wondering how the U.S. plays into all this. Is this a, does this affect our role or our commitment in any way? And this is addressed to either of the three panelists. Um, does this affect our role or commitment in any way? Is this sustainable without any sort of U.S. support or commitment? And um, how does this affect U.S. arms sales? Well, I'd say from well, the uh, perspective of the submarine uh, discussions, like earlier we talked a little bit, I talked a little bit about you know, buying some additional submarines uh, that were smaller than the ones that are being currently pursued indigenously. Uh, that, those would probably be produced indigenously as well, but if you were to, to go out after a design like the 209 class that uh, Germany had previously built, those designs are out there. It'd be a much easier proposition to build one of those from scratch than it would be to, to design a submarine and then build it from scratch within Taiwan. Uh, the air defense systems we're talking about, you know, the mobile and, and uh, guerrilla kinds of air defenses, those could be purchased from the United States or they could be purchased from any number of allies who have similar short-range ground-based air defenses. Uh, and the reason we chose those, those uh, approaches in our recommendations was because that offered multiple potential uh, opportunities for Taiwan to buy these as opposed to there only being one you know, U.S. Uh, seller. Also, we chose them because, uh, in particular, the shorter range air defenses would be less likely to uh, be provocative vis-a-vis uh, -vis China because they don't necessarily have an offensive application, but they would clearly offer the ability to reduce the effectiveness of Chinese uh, aircraft um, or missile systems over Taiwan. 
I think also if you, you accept my proposition that it's better that the first island chain is a line, remains a line of containment rather than a, a jumping off point or a line of defense for the PRC, then the United States needs to deepen its relationship with China. What the particulars of that might be, obviously political circumstances um, will dictate, but um, it is to the advantage of all states around the East Asian littoral to maintain a, a closer relationship and, and, and effectively have some sort of coordinated or common aim and, and a common response to the sort of problems that I was proposing in, in, in some level of coordination. And I would see the United States playing a, a significant, but hopefully an unprovocative role in, in that. Tom, did you... Did I hear you? Yeah, I, I followed all, but I've got um, just one, you know, one comment. Um, it it is not in the United States' interest to end up in a in a large scale conflict with China. So, be, for instance, if we were to strike targets on the Chinese mainland, then who's to say the that China is not going to blow up the Pacific Command headquarters or whatever. I think what will likely the the likely uh, advantages that we'll try and give Taiwan are information. So we have a, a tremendously effective um, constellation of satellites that can provide. Uh, an information advantage to Taiwan. We also have UAVs and unmanned sur surface and underwater vessels. So we can use some of these systems that would um, hopefully keep China from escalating the conflict against the U.S. but still help Taiwan. And then if uh, we felt we wanted to step it up um, deploying U.S. submarines into the region to target Chinese submarines might be the the, the next higher up um, course of action. But I think we would use this, um, the, all of our capabilities to try and give uh, Taiwan an information advantage. Thank you, Tom. Uh, there's a question here in the first row. We'll come to you next. Uh, thank you for coming. My name is Mitsuo Nakai, a member of uh, Reagan Foundations, uh, Japan native, U.S. citizen. I have a few questions. Uh, first one is the old one. Uh, we have one China policy. Uh, recently, there were some discussions uh, or dispute. Um, I want to find out how that is today. Uh, number two, uh, Taiwan should cooperate or for uh, having a trade discussions with Japan. They should they should cooperate a lot more. They can militarily. It's sticky because Japan probably don't want to anger China, mainland China, so much uh, because of that. But the trade they can. Um, those are the two questions. Uh, appreciate it. I acknowledge Japan's difficulties in this area, but clearly we are in a situation of change. Um, I would argue that 
that if China is using a strategy which is essentially enclosing Taiwan from both sides and therefore uh, undermining the attempting to undermine the influence and pressure that both Japan and South Korea on one side and the Southeast Asian nations can on another. If Taiwan is isolated, then that's going to cause enormous problems throughout the region. And the region needs to be aware of that. Uh, if it's not already, I'm sure it is. But it needs to be taking measures as discreetly as, uh, or as overtly as really China dictates um, to overcome that. So trade, if trade's the place to start, start with trade, but in, in inevitably it will end up at least with political uh, cooperation, I would suggest. Um, the, the military cooperation might be some way down the road. Yeah, right, if this is a peacetime competition you know, between Taiwan and China, if we don't necessarily think China really wants to take military action, but wants to use the threat of military action as a tool in a peacetime competition, then expanding Taiwan's trade relationships and then political relationships with Southeast Asian nations and with Japan would be really beneficial in the peacetime competition because that would actually give you a tool that you could use rather than the military tools we've talked about mostly, which are designed to influence you know, the thinking on the other side to reduce their confidence in the military tool in an, in an effort to drive them to these other tools. So if China believes that Taiwan might be able to defend itself in, in enough of a way that the military option may not be on the table and China has to go to these other options, Taiwan's ability to have al alternative avenues of trade and, and uh, diplomatic support would be a way to counter the effort of the Chinese then to go in those directions. So that, that provides a more robust defense of Taiwan's interests. I think it comes back to the point I made earlier. It's about regaining the initiative and we allow China too much of the initiative and we need to push back against that. Uh, this is Tom Brown. I, I'll just leave uh, this, with this with just one answer is that I think it's in Taiwan's interest to build and deploy a fifth generation fighter as soon as possible <laughs> because without it, um, even though I've said um, asymmetrically lots of anti-air missiles, you know, where you can afford to far fire four or five missiles at one airplane, um, it makes a, will make a big difference. But I think the 5G, 5 fifth generation fighter, they just need to, to evaluate avenues. Um, and maybe they could avoid angering China by just, getting technology transfers and designs and just build it in Taiwan. I don't know what the answer is, but um, at this point, uh, where it, stealth seems to convey an advantage, a significant advantage in air superiority. That may change in a year, two years, three years, four years, as... Um, systems are designed to detect and target them. But uh, right now, it looks like they should try and do what the best they can to get a 4.5 or a fifth generation fighter. I don't know where that's going to come from. It sure would be nice if it was a you know joint Japanese-Taiwanese program, but um, the, the, you've got an expert in the room on the Paul Mill uh, 
the political ramifications of something like that. But again, it might just be that they build it in Taiwan and they get the technology transfer from Japan. And maybe that doesn't reach the threshold of, of uh, a major threat to China or um, cause China to do something that we don't want them to do. Thank you. Thanks. John Zan with CTI TV of Taiwan. Um, thank you for great presentations. Um, the, uh, the, the, the challenge, the real challenge for Taiwan as I see it, um, is not that Taiwan doesn't know what systems it needs. It's very much a problem of uh, where to get the systems. If Taiwan decides to build them, you know, to, to do them indigenously, um, what kind of uh, technical assistance it, it, and where to get, you know, the assistance. So um, uh, my question is, first off, um, how confident are you in Taiwan's ability or capability to build some of these systems uh, itself, like submarines, like anti-air uh, systems? Um, um, secondly, to what extent can the United States? Well, other countries, you know, may want to help Taiwan, but, you know, um, that there is this political reality there to overcome. But the U.S. can, certainly can. But to what extent can the U.S. assist Taiwan in the uh, building of its own um, indigenous systems, like submarines? Taiwan probably can build the shell. But weapon systems and a lot, a lot of other systems have to be um, um, becoming from, you know, the United States. Is that possible? Likely? Um, I have another question. Should there uh, be some cross-street contingencies? Um, will the United States still be able to come to Taiwan's defense in military terms? Um, how long should Taiwan's uh, military? Um, fight and resist before the U.S. assistance arrives. Thank you. So I'll, uh, I'll jump in there. on uh, With regard to the, the kinds of systems that we're proposing, I, I would say my recommendations for what kinds of systems Taiwan would invest in to uh, develop the ability to counter Chinese uh, aggression are going to be ones that are within Ch Taiwan's capability to build. Uh, and I kind of, I would get, I guess I would um, push back on the uh, assertion that what they're pursuing now is necessarily the right mix. Uh, so for example, F-16 fighters are not going to do that much for Taiwan in terms of defending its airspace in wartime. In peacetime, you need the ability to have airplanes go out and look at and, and uh, push back on threats. You know, somebody comes into your, your air defense identification zone, you need to have fighter aircraft that can go intercept those aircraft in peacetime to demonstrate your desire to protect your airspace. But in wartime, those are not going to be very useful because they're, they can carry a limited number of weapons and they're highly detectable and you've got a huge number of airplanes coming from the, the Chinese side. Uh, I would say investing in uh, any manned aircraft to attempt to defend Taiwan against China in wartime is not a great idea. I would, that's why we recommend upgrading the current F-16s rather than buying new ones. And I would also recommend buying fifth-generation fighters because I believe that would be the similar challenges. How many of these you buy 
and no, you wouldn't be able to buy nearly enough to counter the enormous numerical and capability advantage that the Chinese would have. This is the same problem the United States is having, is we have, even with our budget, you know, a, a finite number of uh, fifth generation aircraft we're likely to field, and the U.S. is already realizing they have a big numerical disadvantage relative to the Chinese. So for Taiwan to pursue that same approach would be, I think, wasting the money. It'd be much more effective for Taiwan to invest in these capabilities to deny the airspace over Taiwan to the Chinese while not necessarily gaining air superiority itself, which goes to this idea of mobile air defense systems that are uh, systems that could be built within Taiwan or procured from the United States that are more defensively oriented, so the political challenges will be less, or procured from another country. Uh, with regard to submarines, uh, certainly it's within the Taiwanese capability to build the planned submarines and even the smaller submarines that, that I'm proposing. Uh, countries like uh, Malaysia and uh, uh, India are built. I've been to Indian shipyards where they're building diesel submarines that are much larger and more sophisticated in a much older shipyard. So clearly Taiwan has that ability. Uh, I would say Ta India, for example, would be a country that Taiwan could go to for assistance in building submarines uh, because Japan may be, because they're right there in the same region, may not want to you know, anger the Chinese by going to help Taiwan build submarines. India may not have as many concerns given their you know, different geographic situation relative to China. So they may be more willing to help, especially if, if you're talking about a, a diesel submarine that's designed mostly for defensive purposes rather than something that might be used for offensive operations uh, far afield. So U.S. assistance on combat systems, I think, is going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard for the U.S. politically to uh, – I think that's what they should do. I think that would be a great idea for the United States to help with combat systems. But the United States right now only helps with submarine combat systems for Australia, even though it has the relation, these relationships with every other you know, country that has submarines in the world. The only country that gets U.S. submarine combat system technology is Australia. So I, I think it's unlikely that Taiwan's going to get those combat systems. But there's combat systems that are available from the Indians. There's combat systems that are available from uh, European countries. Now, they're probably reticent to support Taiwan militarily. But uh, India, again, might be willing to do that you know, because they have the, the submarine technology and maybe a, a relationship with China that would give them the, the strength or confidence to do that for Taiwan. All I would add to that, I certainly wouldn't want to comment on this field, is, is that the low-end capability that I'm talking about uh, remains a point of weakness. That Taiwan has to look at a full-spectrum defense. And context change. I mean, Brian said, you know, they're on, Taiwan is unlikely to, to, to succumb to fear tactics. I know that because Britain didn't either, but there we go. <laughs> um, nevertheless, if context change around the East Asian littoral and, and China does succeed in fully or partially isolating Taiwan, that there's still enormous disincentive to use military force to subdue the island. And therefore, we'll be looking at some level of intimidation and isolation. And Taiwan's, if you like, first and last line of defense, depending upon which context we're looking at, may well be the low end spectrum. I think that we have time for one more question. I mean, I know we do, so. Uh, this is Steve from Georgetown University. I would like to ask, uh, what's your assessment in uh, ROC uh, Army's role in asymmetrical, in asymmetrical defense, and should there be any structural adjustments for ROC, ROC Army? Thank you. I, I would say, 
similar to what Dr. Murphy's talking about, is trying to make the Army much more organized around a irregular defense or a much more distributed defense. So not thinking of uh, the Army units as maneuver units, which today, you know, might, they, they organ, they're organized a little bit more like the American Army might be, where you're going to do combined arms maneuver warfare, uh, which is not going to be feasible in a Taiwanese, uh, under Taiwanese attack on Taiwan, because you're not going to have helicopters flying around doing reconnaissance and uh, attack. You're not going to necessarily be able to have armored units moving around in an environment where aircraft are coming over and doing airstrikes. So thinking about operating in a much more distributed fashion, much more uh, mobile, maybe light infantry, light vehicles, as opposed to large tanks, you know, is, is going to be a much more effective approach when you think about exploiting the, the terrain of Taiwan against a potential China uh, or Chinese uh, amphibious assault, um, which could easily, could, which you could easily delay, you know, with the smart application of ground firepower that's less vulnerable to air attack. Uh, this is this is Tom Brown. Um, I I think you know one idea is that um, an infantry platoon would be given an assigned area. The area would actually be probably given to a battalion or a company, but then you'd have the infantry platoon based on indications and warnings deploy to a certain area. And just make it of the Chinese doctrine that every platoon has a man pad that is a shoulder launch anti aircraft missile because amphibious invasion is is probably not the best uh, technique for t uh, the PRC. They may prefer airborne combined with air land. Uh, and so if there's a plethora, a large number of man pads across the island of, of uh, Taiwan, much like North Korea, North Korea is a hard target in part because it has so many man pads deployed all over the country, then helicopters and slower-moving transport aircraft at low altitude would be at great risk if there was a high density of man pads. <laughs> Amongst the ground forces. Well, Tom, um, you're the second person to uh, appear at a, a participate in a uh, Hudson conference uh, whose dog um, has barked, and where the bark, at least uh, electronically, is um, probably. Uh, yeah, not so bad as the bite. Yeah, um, we had a, a, a conference a couple of weeks ago, and the former deputy commander of the Israeli Navy's dog was also barking while his master was trying to talk. So I'm quite used to this by now. Um, I, I, I'd like to. Thank if I had, let me tell you one thing. If I had a frying pan in my hand right now, they, they'd be feeling it on the tops of their heads, but. <laughs> The, the, barkers. That's that's a useful thought, but it doesn't complement our interest this morning about asymmetric warfare. That, that does not fit the qualification yeah. of asymmetric. But <clears throat> I understand. Uh, I'd like to thank all the panelists for excellent presentations this morning. Um, 
uh, Tom Brown, uh, Brian Clark, Martin Murphy. Uh, this subject is uh, of profound importance uh, for the obvious reason of the disparity in size and numbers and firepower between uh, democratic Taiwan and non-democratic uh, TRC. Um, there's one uh, the question that you asked about um, the ability of the systems that we're, we've been talking about this morning to come from the United States. Uh, and um, actually, we're going to be, we will be addressing this both directly and indirectly in the future. Um, and by way of specifics on that, uh, we're going to hold a conference as part of this series uh, on economics in early November, uh, November 7th, I believe, if my memory serves correctly. Um, and then, and economics are a large part of this, as are the relationships that are based on it. And then uh, that conference in early November will be followed. That takes place the day before the election. And then that will be followed by another conference um, on November, uh, December 8th uh, that will look at uh, specific suggestions, proposals, predictions, um, about what the new, newly elected American administration, if we know what it is, which I suspect we will, on, uh, on December 8th. So um, this is a really important question. I do not take the current state of um, military assistance between the United States and Taiwan to be granted, granted that it will last into the indefinite future. Political changes uh, in leadership uh, mean political changes in policy. Um, so uh, I, I draw no conclusions, but I invite you to come and participate in a discussion that will try to look at, for example, that very key question. So I'd also like to thank you uh, for joining us this morning, uh, which, and uh, look forward to seeing you again next month. Thank you all. <clears throat>